This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Charles March is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director there of the Project on Live Theology. He's been the recipient of several fellowships and academic prizes, including the fact that he won a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2009. He's the author of several books, including God's Long Summer, Stories of Faith and Civil Rights, which won the 1998 Grawmeyer Award in Religion. His most recent work is Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Charles Marsh, welcome to Thinking in Public. Charles Marsh, in terms of your new biography, and uh, as, as I said to our listeners, I believe it's one of the most important biographies on any subject in, in recent years. How did you come to make such a life project out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Oh, thank you, um, Al, and, and uh, what kind words you, you speak, uh, uh, for which I'm grateful. Um, I had 25 years ago, this, this spring, submitted a, a lumbering doctoral dissertation at the University of Virginia on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's early philosophical theology. Um, Bonhoeffer had come to me in my theory-saturated uh, doctoral work as a breath of fresh air, as a way back to life, to the ministries of, of the Church, to the um, delights of the world and, and service in the world. Uh, I had not, um, beyond that, spent a lot of time uh, in Bonhoeffer scholarship, I had made my way into um, a number of books on the civil rights movement and uh, worked in what I like to call uh, this enterprise uh, of lived theology. Uh, but I, um, I've always um, felt like uh, Bonhoeffer's witness uh, was very present in whatever I did and whatever academic venture or uh, involvement in, in, the, in the world, uh, as, as someone who um, teaches us that Christian conviction has to be engaged with the complexities and challenges and anguishes of our time. And so after, after working on, well, what I thought would be one, but turned out to be four books on the way the Christian faith shaped and inspired the American Civil Rights Movement and other, other social movements for human flourishing in American history. I returned to Bonhoeffer um, with you know, some skills in narrative nonfiction yeah. and historical research. And in 2007, I happened to be um, given a teaching fellowship in Berlin uh, called the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Visiting Professorship at Humboldt University. And I, I know that sounds like, you know, maybe a prestigious title, but I should tell you it came with no salary and no travel fund and no, um, 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 and no apartment expenses, but it did come with a lovely office down in Berlin, Mitte. And soon enough, I made my way to the gorgeous city library, the Berlin sure. Staatsbibliothek. And there... Um, was given access to the newly obtained uh, papers from the estate of Eberhard Baker, who was Bonhoeffer's biographer right. and, uh, and best friend. And so I began to travel there almost every morning to the city library and to look at these 
amazing, mind-blowing letters and photographs and documents from all aspects of his life, um, files uh, that he had kept on the uh, American race problem, um, American race relations sure. during his years in America, uh, a postcard from Waco, Texas. Uh, I guess we can talk about that later. A correspondence with Gandhi uh, from 1934, 1935. Uh, funny personal uh, documents and inventory of his wardrobe. It turns out that the great uh, martyr uh, and resistant hero was also a bit of a fashion hound, and so he liked to keep track of where the best tailors and haberdashers were in, in Berlin, inventories of his, of his library. Um, well, you really, yeah, you really well, demonstrate what an interesting person Bonhoeffer was before you get to the part most people think they know. And uh, I'd, I'd like to begin by asking you about Bonhoeffer in terms of his intellectual context, because you're talking about a young man who from boyhood, uh, believed himself to be called not just to be a, a pastor, but to be a theologian, as he as he told his bemused uh, siblings, and uh, and and then set himself about to do that, but in the context of, of kind of the high water mark of early twentieth century liberalism in Berlin. Tell, tell us about that. Well, you 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 tell an interesting story. At the age of fourteen, he sort of surprised and dismayed his family, uh, most of whom were prodigiously talented humanists, by announcing that he would become a theologian, and when his older brothers said to him, uh, really, a theologian? Um, a, a more paltry institution than the church one can hardly imagine. You hardly ever go yourself. If you become a theologian, you'll be living in full intellectual retreat from the most important issues of the world. And uh, apparently a 14-year-old Dietrich said, in that case, I shall reform it. Um, and he did, at an unusually early age, have a clear sense uh, not only of his intellectual uh, passion, but of um, of his uh, way of thinking about the the, the Christian uh, faith and of uh, sticking himself into this uh, this this extraordinary venture of becoming a Protestant theologian. Somehow, Bonhoeffer managed to write two doctoral dissertations by the age of 24, and to write in a fashion that was sympathetic to many of the new orthodox um, trends and fashions in Protestant theology in, in Europe in a faculty that was largely hostile to those very um, trends in uh, neo-orthodoxy or in the kind of Barthian sure. uh, Karl, uh, themes that, that Bonhoeffer uh, was excited by. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. In terms of the yeah. faculty at Berlin, when when, uh, when young Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, arrives in Berlin, uh, Adolf von Harnack is is still there. You've got Karl Hall, and, and you you've got the, the the biggest marquee names in Protestant liberalism. Uh, he, but he goes there, at least I, I think, in in part, as I understand the story, because of his uh, his prodigious intellect and his very high standing family. Uh, his father, one of the most uh, celebrated uh, psychoanalytic practitioners of the day. And so he really finds himself in Berlin, but he is a bit of an odd animal in the midst of that, uh, uh, of that theology faculty, is he not? He is. Um, his father, I should say, was the head of the, um, the psychiatric clinic at the Charity Hospital in Berlin, but he was not himself an advocate of psychoanalysis. He mm. preferred a more empirical um, 
neurological approach to psychiatry. But indeed, Bonhoeffer went to Berlin because it was the leading theological faculty in the world. And these enormous, you know, heavyweights in um, Protestant liberal thought were were housed in in the department. Um, Bonhoeffer uh, went because he admired the scholarship of Harnack and Hall and those figures you mentioned. At the same time, he went with his typically independent, you know, intellect uh, determined to carve out a place in this um, Protestant liberal faculty uh, uh, for um, a kind of renewed orthodoxy. And, and so when Karl Barth later read doc, Bonhoeffer's doctoral dissertation, Sanctorum Communio, which he wrote uh, at the University of Berlin, he pronounced it eine theologische Überraschung, a, a theological miracle, which could also be translated a kind of a theological shock that something right. <laughs> generally sympathetic to historic Christian orthodoxy would be coming out of the Berlin faculty. And Absolutely. yet Bonhoeffer, um, through his you know, astonishing intellectual gifts, um, uh, found a, a respected place in the faculty and did the work and was, you know, by the age of 24, with a second doctoral dissertation completed, prime for, you know, fame and fortune in the very demanding German academic world. Well, he was, but, you know, it's at that point, and I, I really appreciate the way you tell the story, because, uh, honestly, uh, Bonhoeffer's been waiting for this kind of, of biographical treatment by someone who understands the, so much of the theological as well as the historical and uh, biographical background. But when uh, when you write, for instance, uh, in in your work, and so Dietrich Bonhoeffer became a rare bird in Berlin, a liberal who nevertheless admired Bart and felt strong affinities for the spirit of the so-called dialectical theology, whose radical approach to God transcendence set aside the natural explanations of everyone since Aquinas, as well as the recondite metaphysics of Germany's brightest lights. You know what? What I thought was, you know, that's true, but. They didn't really offer Dietrich Bonhoeffer the job he expected after he supposedly surpassed all their academic expectations. How, how do you right. explain that, that? Well, that's that's absolutely correct. I I think at the same time um, Bonhoeffer was quite restless and ready to move on from what he uh, increasingly felt as a kind of a suffocating um, theological environment not only at the University of Berlin, but in in the rather moribund church of uh, Northern European uh, Protestantism. Um, And and so, look, I think that had he um, shown a more resolute interest in in pursuing uh, a familiar academic life in German uh, theology, he would have... Um, he would have flourished, and um, and doors would have opened up. Yeah, um, I can see however, that. However, yeah. he, um, you know, he he had he had written these two extraordinary doctoral dissertations on Christian community. He had written beautiful essays on um, joy and joy of the Lord and um, and the joy of uh, worship and life in. Um, in, in discipleship to Jesus Christ. But here's what we discover when we look a little more closely at Bonhoeffer around that time. He had no personal experience of those ideas. Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking at Bonhoeffer, e- even in that context, 
um, you know, it seems to me you can't tell the story of his theological development without the first horrifying moral and theological crisis of his life, which was the First World War. That's right. And, and of course, in many ways, that was the end of Protestant liberalism. As Karl Barth uh, described, uh, his own uh, horror in seeing his own professor sign the bethmann holweg Declaration— and uh, at that point, Bonhoeffer also, who lost a brother in the war and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and had a brother, another brother wounded in the war, he seems to understand that this was a great theological cataclysm that kind of sets the stage for what would follow. He does. I, I think what, what's different, um, just at the level of, you know, lived life, is that Harnack was a neighbor of the Bonhoeffers. And um, Bonhoeffer... Uh, moved very gracefully uh, in these sorts of upper-middle-class Protestant liberal circles. And while he would um, no doubt distinguish himself and differentiate himself and bring that tradition into a rather sharp critique, um, there was a a, a sense of, of loyalty to these people as friends and neighbors um, that kept him from ever vilifying, or I should say, turning Protestant liberal practitioners into caricatures. But he does declare that no true Christian can uh, support the war and the war effort and the war government, as so many of those uh, you know paragons of Protestant liberalism had done. It's it's really I, that's the reason I'm pressing the the point with you here. Right. It, it, it's interesting to me that I I actually don't know how to describe Bonhoeffer at that point. Uh, reading as much of his writings as as I have throughout the years, I'm not sure he's yet a pacifist, but he's against the war. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, um, there's this fascinating trip Bonhoeffer makes to the United States in 1930 and 1931 that becomes for him, I think, uh, a a, a kind of a a transformative year and uh, brings him into what, is clearly a, a spiritual awakening. He he has uh, an invitation after he finishes the second doctoral dissertation to come to Union Theological Seminary in New York City to spend a year as a visiting scholar. And Bonhoeffer accepts this invitation and imagines it's going to be another chapter in his charmed life. He certainly doesn't think that he has anything to learn from Protestant liberals of the North American uh, milieu to whom he's very uh, condescending. He was very condescending. He he um, he believed that American Protestant liberalism um, was no different, really, than um, American pragmatism, and that it was in fact uh, uh, shaped by the same kind of pragmatic calculus. He he joked that Americans sort of fashion uh, God in their own image, the way someone might uh, design a car in Detroit, according to certain tastes and preferences. And he came to New York uh, certain that he had nothing to learn from American mainline, we should, we should say here, a white Protestantism. Uh, he um, runs up to Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, with whom he took a course at Union that first fall after a, after a lecture, and he asked uh, Professor Niebuhr, is this a training center for you know social activists and politicians, or is this a seminary? Um, he is dismayed by uh, what he finds to be the kind of sophomoric, uh, really anti-intellectual quality of American uh, Protestant uh, theology. 
Um, but in the course of that year, he's invited by an African-American seminarian, son of a Baptist pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, named Frank Fisher, to visit uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he, um, he goes, and um, what begins is an intense, transformative, uh, six-month immersion in the African-American church that leads Bonhoeffer uh, to see and to experience uh, in what he later called the Church of the Outcast of America, uh, this sort of eruptive joy of, of Jesus, uh, the sense of a worshiping community, a sense of a real sanctorum communio yes. in the energies and conviction. An exuberant worship he had never church. seen before. He, he, it, a, the, a kind the of worship, worship he had yeah. never seen before, and uh, a sense in which he says to uh, one of his friends back in Berlin, it's only in the black churches of America that I have heard an authentic word uh, proclaimed of the gospel. And when he returns to Germany uh, after this 10-month uh, year, uh, 10-month stay in, in, in Union, he, um, he, he returns with dramatically transformed uh, perceptions of his vocation as a, as a theologian, really of his whole identi- identity as a Christian. He falls in love with the Bible. He falls in love with the Sermon on the Mount. He um, begins to develop um, um, these sorts of networks of, of Bible studies in Berlin. Uh, he, he, he starts attending church with a, uh, an uncommon devotion. His family, in fact, began to wonder what ha- what's happened to him. They, they had known him to be a brilliant theologian, but they, they now see uh, and worry that he's become a bit too zealous. That's a really interesting point, though, uh, Charles, because, I mean, here you have something that could could basically only happen in one snapshot of of 20th century history. You're you're talking about the very elite upper class in Germany who can tolerate having a son who's a theologian, but having one who's a worshiping Christian becomes a a bit too awkward. And, uh, you know, the university life and university theology was uh, in so many ways separated from the life of the church, the way that Bonhoeffer come to know it. And then, you know, he comes to the United States. His statements about Protestant liberals like Harry Emerson Fosdick are more caustic than anything Gresham Machen would have said. Uh, you know, when he says that uh, the Riverside Church, they've replaced the community of Christ with a social corporation. And, uh, <laughs> you know, where he goes on and says of Fosdick's preaching, the sermon has been reduced to parenthetical church remarks about newspaper events. And then my favorite one's the one that you have in the end notes, where he, he predicts that the Riverside Church will become, quote, a temple of idolatry, end quote. And I'm just telling you, Gresham Machen uh, never quite said that, but that's what Bonhoeffer saw. And, and, of course, later, when he comes back in 1939, he will write a short but powerful essay called Protestantism Without Reformation. And he will imagine that, or he will wonder um, whether... The reason uh, uh, the American Protestant establishment um, conducts itself with, with such a sense of sort of theological entitlement, it can pick and choose whatever doctrines uh, make us comfortable and kind of you know, legitimate our, our unprejudices and, and taste, um, as the result of a church that never had to endure the sufferings of a Reformation, and to risk everything 
uh, on the truthfulness of the Word of God. It's a very powerful, powerful essay. Okay, so let me press you on that for just a moment. When Bonhoeffer says that, uh, in a similar way that I, I would wish I could have asked Bart uh, directly, when Bonhoeffer says that, when he speaks of the Word of God, of what is he speaking? When Bonhoeffer speaks of, of the Word of God, and, and of course, um, Bonhoeffer uh, speaks of the Word quite often in relationship to discipleship to Jesus Christ, he is speaking of the totality of the Gospel story. The Gospel as the story of um, good news uh, of Jesus Christ um, revealed of God to set the captives free, to reconcile fallen humanity to himself. He means the totality of the good news as um, as a new new life new birth um, the, um, the 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 cost of, of discipleship he means that as um, a taking uh, up of of, of of one's cross and following Jesus Christ as he says in, in the cost of discipleship when Jesus Christ calls a person to follow, he calls that person to come and die. That first step of the disciples' uh, ascent to the call of Jesus is a step into a new world, is a step into a new citizenship, is a step into a new way of being. He means truth. That's a crucial issue in terms especially of reading 20th century theology. When you read someone mention the Word of God, we have to ask the question, what is meant by that expression? Professor Marsh points to the fact that for Bonhoeffer, that meant the good news of the gospel as he understood it. That meant the larger news of what God had done in Christ for humanity. But we need to note that when Bonhoeffer was using the phrase Word of God, he wasn't specifically referring to Scripture. There is an event character to what Bonhoeffer was almost assuredly meaning here. And that goes right back to a very similar usage of that phrase by Karl Barth, even in his seminal book, The Word of God and the Word of Man. Because what Barth meant by the Word of God is not the Word of God written, that is, the Scripture, but rather what he believed to be the Word within the Word. That is, the Word of God as an event, rather than the Word of God in terms of language that was reduced to propositional statements as found in an inspired Scripture. When reading any figure from church history, it's really important to put that figure inside the context of his or her own day, the intellectual age and the theological context in which this particular person is writing or preaching or teaching. And when it comes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've got to place him right at the University of Berlin during the very high watermark of theological liberalism. You've got to understand that he rejected that liberalism, but he did not reject the fundamental worldview behind it. And, much like Bard and others associated with neo-Orthodoxy, there was a mixture of the neo and of Orthodoxy. And that always, in every individual case, led to an interesting mix. That is certainly true when it comes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, let's move to the part of Bonhoeffer's life that people think they know. But I just want to tell uh, listeners ahead of time, if you haven't read this book, you, you really don't know what you think you know 
uh, about the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the period of his time that uh, that that is is most associated with that name. So, Charles, when you're making the great turn in Bonhoeffer, it's after he comes as a visiting professor uh, here in in New York City. It's after he returns. It's even after he spends some uh, some time back in the United States in which he comes to the convictional decision. He can't stay here, but has to go back with the church in Germany. Uh, you know, t- t- tell us what's going on there. How, how do you get from Bonhoeffer, the young prodigy writer of two doctoral dissertations, to, uh, to, to the Bonhoeffer of crisis as war is imminent, speaking of the Second World War in Germany? That's right, and that's, that's really part of the, the kind of uh, suspense I, I wanted to un- unpack at the, heart of my, at the heart of my biography. You know, how does this golden child of the Berlin Grunewald you know, um, um, a scion of an aristocratic family who um, had so many extraordinary gifts and also um, so many entitlements uh, become um, this um, in, in, intent and committed follower of Jesus Christ who finds himself not only um, at the center of the so-called Kirchenkampf, the church resistance against Hitler, but ultimately as a member of the conspiracy that would attempt to assassinate Hitler. And I think the, the, the story you mentioned, Al, of Bonhoeffer's second trip to America in 1939 is an important marker of that. By 1939, of course, Bonhoeffer was under uh, almost constant surveillance by the Gestapo. He had, um, he had his, his work, his writing, his teaching, his preaching had uh, all been uh, prohibited. He also realized that he was going to be drafted into Hitler's army, and uh, he intended to say no to conscription, and of course there was no place for conscientious objection in, in Hitler's army. And um, around that time, some friends of his from, from America, Reinhold Niebuhr and others uh, from New York and from the Lutheran Church, hurriedly put together a teaching position for him that would uh, have made it possible for Bonhoeffer to leave Germany and to come and sort of uh, live um, what would be the remainder of the war in the relative security of academe. But Bonhoeffer had not been in New York for more than 24 hours on that sweltering hot summer of 1939 before he realized that he had made a mistake and returned to Germany after what was a kind of dark, really sweltering hot night of the soul for six weeks. Um, concluding this, I realized I made a mistake in coming to America, I realized that I cannot hope to be a part of the rebuilding of the church in Germany or the state in Germany after the war unless I return to Germany and suffer alongside the brethren and suffer alongside of this church that is disintegrating and that needs the witness of such people as I. And I want to add one more thing, Al. He also at that point had read and knew uh, quite a bit about the... Uh, Nazi brutalities and atrocities, the deportations and uh, the, the, the plans uh, of, of the coming uh, Holocaust. His brother-in-law, Hans von Dachmiani, who was a conspirator himself, had access to military intelligence and had been compiling a long document called A Chronicle of, of Nazi Atrocities and Brutalities. And Bonhoeffer had been approached by Dachmiani and his own brother, Klaus Bonhoeffer, to come back to Germany and be a part of the conspiracy and ultimately a plot to assassinate Hitler. So when Bonhoeffer returned from Germany in 1939, 
he went back not only intending to do what he could as a pastor to help serve this um, ever um, uh, diminishing um, confessing church, but that he was also going to say yes to this more difficult invitation to take part in a conspiracy that will ultimately seek to assassinate Hitler. You know, I did a lot of my doctoral work on, on Karl Barth. My doctoral uh, dissertation was actually on evangelical responses to Karl Barth, but uh, had, had I spent so many years studying Barth. And, and the Confessing Church is so much a part of that story, and yet I, I came to the conclusion that, uh, that the Confessing Church was a whole lot more difficult to place than the American theological imagination, even the evangelical imagination, ha- has put it. And, and so I was eager to read how you would treat the Confessing Church— and uh, you, along with uh, another scholar, I think Victoria Barnett, uh, do the best job of laying out what the Confessing Church is really all about. It was not united in its opposition to mm-hmm. Hitler early on. It was not united in, uh, in opposition to anti-Semitism early right. on. That's right. And I, I appreciate um, your, um, um, your recognition of that very difficult point. We have, um, we have in a sense, created it in, in, in the United States and in, throughout the English-speaking world, a, a kind of romantic uh, narrative of, of the Confessing Church story. And, in fact, it's, it's a very troubled one um, uh, from, from beginning to end. And um, uh, one of the stories I tell, I'll, I'll just give you just the one-sentence one version of this, is Bonhoeffer's response to the so-called Bethel Confession at the end of 1933. Bonhoeffer had insisted that this first major confession of the confessing church against the Nazification of the German church include a specific reference to Jewish persecution. And in a final draft of that confession that, that did not actually include Bonhoeffer's participation, the writers of that deleted Bonhoeffer's yes. phrase, and he was furious. But it showed already how Bonhoeffer wanted to say, yes, these um, theological confessions are important. Maintaining the autonomy of the Church from state intrusion is important, but the Church also has to speak a concrete word against an immoral state. You know, when you look at Bonhoeffer in that light, uh, he appears to be one of the most deeply convictional and courageous and yet deeply conflicted persons. And, and and even as you tell the story, and you do it so very well, uh, Bonhoeffer is is himself uh, not sure about how to respond to so many of these issues. And, and you deal with what I consider to be the central ethical uh, question about Bonhoeffer, to be honest. And that is how in the world he joined the Abwehr, the uh, military yeah. intelligence, because you you actually tell the story, and you, you're good at suspense because you don't raise the question that your reader should be raising long before you raise it. Uh, yeah, but you, I know it's coming. You suggest that he does so uh, consistent with his aims and the context. Um, mm-hmm. I still find that a very puzzling thing, as did Karl Barth, we point out. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for those kind words. And, you know, I should I should point out that, you know, we're we're both fellow Southerners and and Southern Baptists, and, and so the, the power of, of narrative and story and, and testimony is, is deep, is deep in my bones. And at some point, I, 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 I figured out that the best way for me to do apologetics, at least, would be to do so through a kind of uh, artful testimonial. Um, but I, I, I did want to render Bonhoeffer vivid and human 
and to show how he's often very uncertain about the course of action and about God's will for uh, the present time. And sometimes he makes mistakes. And sometimes he has to um, try something two or three times <laughs> before he can get it straight. And yet, on this particular point of coming back and joining the conspiracy, I have to offer what may be um, an unpopular uh, view to some American listeners, and that is I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Bonhoeffer ever hesitated in his support of an assassination plot on Hitler's life. Now, it's clear that Bonhoeffer, as a Christian and as a theologian, and as a member of this kind of high ethical Bonhoeffer family, felt an obligation to writing um, various accounts of uh, how and why and under what circumstances tyrannicide might be uh, warranted. But all of my interviews with family and with friends and with people who uh, knew Bonhoeffer and looking at anecdotal evidence from testimonies around that time, from witnesses around that time, Bonhoeffer knew in 1939 that Hitler had to be killed. And he reused the phrase several times, killing the madman. Yes. Um, and so while he had indeed to reckon with um, some of the tensions that you described, how can someone who pro pro professes to be a pacifist or at least committed to a peace ethic give his blessings to a plot to kill um, Hitler. Um, uh, nonetheless, Bonhoeffer knew that that was the correct course of action. Well, and he used his pastoral gifts in the conspiracy not only to offer his blessings on conspirators, to pray for the defeat of his country, but to, to, to share the, the plans of the conspiracy with allied nations. Well, one of the uh, oh, I'll just say one of my favorite pages uh, in in your book, uh, A Strange Glory: A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is found on page three forty six, and uh, I I cited this page recently in a lecture on Martin Luther, not on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, <laughs> and uh, and and it strikes me that reading your book as a theologian and an historical theologian, that uh, Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran in that sense, uh, fully does understand. That uh, that Lutheranism gave the Nazi regime uh, some cultural symbols it could co-opt uh, right. as, uh, you know, a, a theology of glory, as, as Bonhoeffer and, uh, and Bart and others would recognize. But it also gave uh, an understanding of human sinfulness. That's right. And, uh, and, and on page 346, I, I just want to read this back to you. I want listeners to hear it. Uh, this is the most concise, I think, accurate understanding of Luther uh, on this question. Uh, you write, in this connection, it was useful to remember Luther's understanding of the working of grace. Humankind, despite its best efforts, was inevitably engulfed by sin, from which Christ's death on the cross offered the only redemption. It was for this reason, not out of perversity, as many Catholic critics would claim, that the father of the Reformation had reasoned that the Christian must sometimes sin boldly. His counsel... You write, was not an incitement to wantonness, but rather to heightened awareness that only Christ saves. One came to Christ a sinner in the best case. One could at least sin for the sake of righteousness. Bonhoeffer did not try to resolve the paradox by assuming moral innocence, but accepted the paradox by incurring the guilt born out of responsible action. End quote. I think Bonhoeffer knew that it was wrong to kill Hitler. It was just far 
even infinitely less wrong than not to. As he describes, you, you mentioned paragraphs later, if a pastor were watching a lunatic intentionally drive a car into innocent bystanders, he would be guilty if he did not act. <laughs> That's correct. Well, that is, that is frankly a presentation of Bonhoeffer that is a lot more complex than the, uh, the story that many evangelicals, uh, oh, and many Americans, for that matter, secular Americans, think they know about Bonhoeffer. It, it, it's the man who, uh, in, in the popular imagination, who overcomes his moral scruples uh, in an agonizing way to decide to join this uh, eventually failed assassination attempt against Hitler. But one of the strengths of, of your telling of the story is he is developing in terms of his understanding, and, and frankly with some fits and starts that aren't too elegant to read in retrospect. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And I think that here's the, here's, here's, here's the, the, an interesting di- distinction, that he... He, he, he doesn't think that it's necessarily morally wrong to kill Hitler, but he does recognize that it's sinful to take a human life. And so his anguish and this um, grappling with um, Lutheran's uh, gorgeous and complicated you know, theology of sin um, is where Bonhoeffer's um, intensity sees it, shows itself most in this decision to confer blessings on the conspiracy, to pray for the defeat of this country, to seek to topple this unjust regime. Now, you, you, if I could summarize uh, your argument, and, I, and I, I want to test this with you, you, you come to the conclusion that Bonhoeffer was indeed, without any question, a martyr, but he was not, in an uncompromising sense, a hero. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, 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 Bonhoeffer would not have wanted either <laughs> to be said of him, and I, um, I would uh, affirm nonetheless his, uh, his status as a martyr. I would even go so far as to agree with my uh, friend uh, Wolfgang Huber, the former bishop of the Lutheran Church of Germany, that we have sufficient grounds to call Bonhoeffer, a Protestant saint. Um, heroic is a, is, a, is, a, is a different quality, um, and uh, he, he did not seek to act heroically. He, see, he sought to act responsibly, and in acting responsibly, he chose a different path from the heroic path, and it's a path that reckons with complexity and, as you nicely sh- pointed out, the sinful structures of the world and the inevitably sinful responses to those sinful structures in this fallen creation. Responsible, not heroic. Well, I think that's a very helpful qualification, and and it doesn't actually uh, in any way mitigate his courage, Uh, but it does does help us from creating a cartoon character of history. You're absolutely uh, right, and, and and he's a and I I love the honesty of your book where you point out that uh, in, in the midst of such a courageous act and its aftermath, and in in the midst of being in uh, in prison from which he eventually comes to understand he's not going to emerge alive, hmm. uh, he complains that his sausages are not cut straight. <laughs> he his his behavior in prison is is wonderful. He. Um, he both ministers to the prisoners, he accepts the prison community as his new congregation. And in fact, he, he, he lives his life in prison as, 
and the flow of a kind of, you know, Protestant monastic day. There's a liturgical flow to his day. But he's not afraid to complain about the food and about the, you know, the, the poor service and about the rudeness and to um, show that there's a line between um, the kind of uh, just and, uh, and, and rightful um, um, claim of a, uh, of a good sausage as there is in fighting, you know, systematic evil in the world. And so he, he remains consistent in that somewhat, um, you know, touching and, and, uh, and humorous way, even, even in these final days. It's just very human. I, I want to ask you about two other big issues. Um, my favorite of Luther's, oh, excuse me, that, that was a Freudian slip. Uh, my, my favorite of Bonhoeffer's works is uh, is Life Together. And, and you know, yeah. there are, are so many uh. evangelicals who are drawn to I can just tell you as a seminary student and as a seminary president, I'm drawn to that because it is such a biblically idealistic understanding of how a theological community would be together, devotionally together, in worship together, in, in, in life and obedience together. You know, I have to agree with you, Al, and, and say that um, Life Together is the book when I'm um, addressing student audiences and churches and bookstores, um, I recommend as, as the, the first book to read uh, in, 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 um, in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer canon. Uh, but I have to tell you that uh, writing the chapter on Life Together um, showed me a new perspective on the book that... Um, it's so poignant. I remember I, I had read this book many times, and I, I don't know why I'd missed this. But This Life Together is a book, you know, about Christian community. It's a book that many church groups study as a kind of manual on evangelical community. And yet Bonhoeffer wrote this love song uh, on Christian community after this wonderful experiment at, at Finkenwalde in Christian community yes. had been shut down by the Gestapo. That is to say, the Christian community that Bonhoeffer had been, had been intensely involved with for two years had been disintegrated. Um, and he was without that richness and without that sense of, 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 of the present gift of the community. And so he's looking back on Christian community as a gift. And you know, in that first section of Life Together, he, he almost acknowledges that, you know, our mission is in exile, and that the, the, the physical presence of other Christians in Life Together, in worship, is not a right, but it's a gift. And that many Christians, perhaps most Christians, uh, worship Christ, in an exilic situation, and it is it is it is written uh, precisely out of the, his own poignancy of now being in a church that has um, run aground and um, turned idolatrous, and, uh, living without community. Yeah. That he penned this gorgeous, eloquent narrative about Christian community. Well, as an evangelical theologian, reading your work. And uh, and having uh, the Fortress Press uh, set of Bonhoeffer behind me, and uh, and and having worked on Bonhoeffer for, for years myself, uh, at not so much his his life, but his thought. That's why I just one of the reasons I relished uh, your biography so much. Um, 
I'm still struggling, but I'm frustrated by many attempts, especially by, I, th- I think, rather superficial evangelical analysis, to, to try to make Bonhoeffer an evangelical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, he continued to accept all the central claims of modernity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, much like uh, the neo-Orthodox, uh, of which he, he might be considered a part, at least in part. You know, he, he accepts uh, modernity's central claims. If, if I could offer a thesis, it would be that that Bonhoeffer is not radically uh, uh, discontin- uh, discontinuous, I should say, with uh, with Harnack. He wants he wants Harnack's modernity, but he wants transcendence. Uh, he he wants uh, true Christian ethic, and and he wants true Christian community. Because by the time you get to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity, by the time you get to his Christianity without the framework of, uh, I think, the rule of faith, uh, I'm not sure what's left. Can you help me with that? What, what, what's yeah. left? I mean, I, I do think that, um, that the so-called Death of God movement in the late 60s um, read you know, a few passages and letters from pra- papers from prison and became uh, much too excited about the the prospects of, of, of using Bonhoeffer for their kind of uh, radical Hegelian uh, death of God project. Because if you read letters and papers in its totality, I think it stands in strong continuity um, with uh, Bonhoeffer's earlier writings. Um, I, I, I think the, the phrases, the non-religious interpretation of Christianity, uh, world come of age, uh, living with God, before God, as if there were no God, is a way of, um, once again, um, showing the difference between following Jesus and being religious. And so for Bonhoeffer, you know, religion uh, is, you know, a kind of 1900-year project that ran aground in the, um, in the, in the ruins of the church's complicity with Hitler. And so we are living in a time beyond religion, but this is, for Bonhoeffer, an opportunity, I believe, to recover um, the original energies and convictions of the gospel. And, and so I think we need to read those passages alongside, for example, his uh, recitation of Irenaeus and very high... Um, Pauline Christology, his, um, his remarks about the um, importance of seeing uh, Christ and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as the unlocking of what he likes to call the polyphony of life. And, um, and so what I see him struggling with here is this. What does it mean to proclaim the gospel in a time in which the language of the, of the Christian faith has been so profaned and so abused. Uh, some people might say he goes the way of secularity and the death of God. I think that's a misreading. Well, I, 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 I agree with you with that. And, and I think one of the clearest evidences of that is his response to Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, suggesting yeah. that Niebuhr's Christian realism was insufficiently Christian and that, uh, that the corrective was theism. That's right. uh, and and so I I, th- I think uh, it, it it is impossible to to declare uh, Bonhoeffer uh, to be a, a part of the Death of God movement, but he was he was very clearly uh, a, a a prophet of modernity, suggesting that whatever Christianity was on the other side of the Reconstruction after 
Nazism and the Holocaust, it was going to be a fundamentally reordered religion. Uh, I think it was going to be a religion that uh, renewed the origins of the faith and that was robustly um, grounded in a historic uh, Trinitarian Christianity. And mm. I say this because of the way he invokes several times in the letters and papers from prison this notion of arcane discipline. Look, he's in prison. He's observing the ruins of the church from a Gestapo prison cell. And he's wanting to ask the question, how can Christians proclaim the gospel in this time beyond the Holocaust and the Third Reich? And one of his proposals is we may need to return to a catacomb yes. like way of being um, followers of Jesus. And this arcane discipline is an ancient tradition, a practice uh, that the Church has used in times when the Gospel has just been spoken and misused publicly to the point at which it's lost its meaning. And in these circles, these devotional circles, these gatherings of people in Bible study and prayer, the mysteries of the faith, the doctrines of the faith, the, the richness of the Christian tradition would be spoken and it would be renewed, but there would have to be some recognition that the public uh, had to be gently um, um, uh, rehabilitated in its understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. You could no longer say yes. what it means to be a Christian is to be a good citizen, a good German, a good Lutheran, a good this, a good that. It means a new being, this step into a new way of life that is inaugurated in the call of Jesus, and I see all of those energies still really at the heart of Bonhoeffer's imagination in prison. I want to ask you in conclusion, what was the—because you deal with Bonhoeffer in so many different ways, his privileged childhood, his, 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 the fact that he was raised as, as, uh, as, as, as a twin— uh, with a twin sister, that he, he had such a life of privilege, and and then you follow through the twists and turns of his life. You deal honestly with his sexuality and, uh, mm. and, and personal relationships. What was the greatest surprise you found in your research about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, um, the issue of Bonhoeffer's relationship with Eberhard Beitka is one that has been um, addressed, you know, off-camera, uh, if you will, at Bonhoeffer Dolly gatherings for, for decades, um, and I um, wanted to render that um, complicated and what I think is uh, finally a beautiful and, from Bonhoeffer's per perspective, um, tragic relationship in a way that was as respectful and honest as possible. And so I, um, I wanted to to present this story uh, as such. Bonhoeffer had a romantic attraction to Eberhard Baker. That is from the evidence, from the letters, and from the um, documentary evidence, indisputable. He imagined some kind of a spiritual marriage with this um, fellow Christian who had become for him a soulmate. Uh, that clustered around uh, shared devotional practices and a love of Jesus, and also, I should add, celibacy. Um, Eberhard, it is clear, uh, never was able to reciprocate 
the intensity of Bonhoeffer's affections, and he never quite um, uh, accepted this uh, this kind of uh, implicit proposal for uh, a, a spiritual partnership that would that would endure. So the bookends of the of the story are this: um, a clear romantic attraction to Eberhard, at the same time a priestly commitment Bonhoeffer understood as, uh, as an abbot of this evangelical seminary, as a kind of monastic uh, experiment in evangelicalism, um, that uh, celibacy for him should be a, um, a practice, and he remained celibate, and he died a celibate. And so I never wanted to um, – I worked really hard on this. Well, I, I think I you were very respectful. I can't tell you how very respectful. I can't tell you how many drafts I went through and how many conversations with many, so many people I had um, to finally just show this without making any po- policy or you know policy conclusions yes. as what it is to render that as part of the complexity and beauty of Bonhoeffer's story. And I, I appreciate your remark that, that it, 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 it did seem respectful. Well, the way you treat Bonhoeffer's story and uh, the intellectual uh, context in which uh, Bonhoeffer lived and thought, and, uh, and frankly, the school with which you tell the story, uh, I, I recommend several religious biographies uh, to students. Uh, I, I recommend, uh, of course, Roland Bayton's Here I Stand about Luther and Peter Brown on Augustine. And uh, I just want you to know that uh, I recommend now Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of those great biographies every theology student and, uh, and, and every thinking Christian should read. I am so moved by that. And uh, I hope this can lead, Al, to um, uh, further conversations and um, um, and a, a visit here on our beautiful grounds in Charlottesville, and I, I would love to, um, I would love to break bread with you and, and spend some time in um, in Louisville. Uh, and uh, very good. It's really, it's really, um, it's really an honor to speak with you, Charles. I just have to ask you, what's your next project? Because uh, I, I I know you're already on to something else. What comes next? Well, I um, want to tell you that God has a sense of humor, Al. Thirty years ago, this uh, this spring, I was asked by uh, an atheist philosopher of religion uh, at UVA to TA for a class called Faith and Doubt in the Modern World that would soon be called by students Doubt and Doubt in the Modern World. Um, and I joked with uh, the professor 30 years ago that one day uh, I would conspire to take over this class and uh, restore or at least introduce for the first time the element of faith. Well, this, uh, this professor, who later became a colleague of mine at Virginia, retired about a year ago, and her course, Faith and Doubt in the Modern World, became open, and the chair of my department said, would anyone like to teach this? And I said, um, I am going to teach that class. So I am teaching Faith and Doubt in the Modern World this spring. I am having such unexpected joy, uh, not only introducing um, people of faith into the syllabus, but you know, also really helping students construct uh, a narrative of modern atheism and the robust uh, responses of faith that were um, 
that were developed. And uh, I find myself now wanting to write a book that is kind of based on this experience of teaching in a secular university um, about uh, reasons for faith and the case for God, conversations I'm having with students, conversations I have with colleagues. Um, so it, it, it's a very, you know, I'm in the very early stages of this, but, you know, I, I want to write a memoir uh, that offers reasons for faith, but also uh, in maybe a humorous way, in a moving way, shows what it's like for an evangelical Christian to be teaching in the secular university. That's kind of what I find myself doing now. Well, I, I, uh, I'm pleased to hear it, and I, I know our listeners will be envious of the experience of your students. I, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Charles. Thank you so much for joining me. For Thank you, Al. Public. Blessings, and look forward to our next exchange. Absolutely. God bless you. Bye-bye. Same to you. This conversation helps us to understand why biography is such a compelling form of literature. It is because when you have a story of a life well told, it's virtually impossible to put it down. And when you add to that, that certain biographies take as their focus an individual at a strategic moment in history, when vital issues and events are taking place, when that story is well told, and when, as Charles Marsh has given us in this biography, you have very careful attention to the literary, historical, and intellectual backgrounds Well, there you have a fundamentally important recipe for a compelling biography. Not only compelling, but genuinely important. The story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is interesting from the very beginning. Here you have a boy that is born into one of the most privileged societies that modern humanity has ever known. You're talking about Berlin, which saw itself as the very center, the cultural center of the universe. You're talking about one of the most highly educated, highly advanced societies. And you're talking about a boy who was born as the son of a psychiatrist in one of the most illustrious middle class, and that means very wealthy neighborhoods in Berlin. He knew his neighbors' names, such as Adolf von Harnack, and he knew a society that privileged culture and education above virtually everything else. And you're talking about a boy who knew the fine things of life. As Charles Marsh makes clear, he was attentive to his fashions, to his clothes, all the way to the very end of his life, and even to the disposition of those things after his death. You're talking about a young man who, at age 14, announced to his humanist siblings that he intended to become a theologian, something that was absolutely shocking to them, because as one of his brothers said, that was a reversion in terms of intellectual life. They couldn't imagine that their little brother, given all of these advantages, would actually choose to be a theologian. And yet you also see the ambition of young Dietrich when he tells his brother, then I will reform the discipline. And that's what he actually set out to do. Many evangelicals think they know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in terms of the major turning points of his life, and they understand that he was involved in some way, eventually, in the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. They know that eventually he was executed by the Nazis in the Flossenburg concentration camp. They know that the tragedy in terms of one of the ironies of history is that that execution took place just about two weeks before the Allies liberated that camp. They understand Dietrich Bonhoeffer as an example of courage, and he is often described as a martyr for the Christian faith. They may know Dietrich Bonhoeffer through two of his most important and well-known writings. The first of these is Life Together. That is the platform, the program that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called for 
in his Seminary for Training Pastors. It calls for what the title implies, life together, devotional life together, worship life together. It's something like a Protestant monasticism, and anyone involved in theological education and the training of ministers understands the power of the understanding of what it would mean to learn together, to teach together, to worship together. There's something fundamentally beautiful and idealistic about that vision, and it's one that continues to have a great deal of resonance with evangelicals today. Many evangelicals also know Dietrich Bonhoeffer through his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and through his warning against what he called cheap grace. And especially, now well into the 21st century, we can understand the danger of that cheap grace, that is Christianity without a cross. And yet, even as evangelicals think they may know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my guess is that when they read Charles Marsh's magisterial biography, they're going to come to understand there's far more to the story than they knew. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a far more interesting character than that which is told in terms of much evangelical history. He is not simply someone who came to a determination that he would be involved in a plot to kill Hitler. He is also someone who had to follow the trauma of the First World War and came to the understanding that Christianity must be against war and especially against a government that would claim a theological rationale for an imperialistic war of conquest. The great tragedy of the First World War actually brought an imminent collapse to the entire theological world that dominated Germany in the first decades of the 20th century. That was the world of classical Protestant liberalism. And at the very center of that was a professor known as Adolf von Harnack, that is, the Bonhoeffer's family neighbor. Harnack was one of the first modern historians of dogma, or historians of theology, and he called for eliminating all of what he described as the artificial structures around the Christian truth claim and getting to the kernel of Christianity. But what he saw as the husk, what he wanted to throw away, was all of the system of classical doctrine that Christianity has understood as its very essence, as the rule of faith, as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Basically, in making a pact with modernity, Harnack and his colleagues called for eliminating all the supernatural, for eliminating the miraculous. Out went the incarnation of Jesus Christ, out went the inspiration of Scripture, out went the centrality, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and what was left was an ethic and a philosophy of life. Out of that movement, and especially out of the trauma of the First World War, came a movement known as neo-orthodoxy, and the prime mover in that movement was none other than Karl Barth. And yet Dietrich Bonhoeffer is rightly associated in some way with that movement. And yet, every one of those neo-Orthodox thinkers was a mixture of the Orthodox and of modernity. And in terms of the superstructure of their thought, it was modernity that was fundamental. They were trying to rescue what they thought might be rescued of historic Christianity in the aftermath of the modern age and its anti-supernaturalism, its inherent secularism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to understand that Protestant liberalism was itself a failed project because even as it denied transcendence, it left no eventual role for even divine judgment. It left no theological fiber that gave the German church the ability to withstand the war claims of the emperor and later of Adolf Hitler. One of the great achievements of this biography is that Charles Marsh writes so honestly not only about Bonhoeffer but about his colleagues and about the Confessing Church, making very clear that the Confessing Church did not represent a clean break with Nazism, a clean break even with the Hitler regime, at least not in the beginning. And as this book also makes clear in telling the story of Bonhoeffer, we're telling the story of twists and turns, of intellectual developments. We're telling the story of him leaving that privileged German culture and coming to the United States, where he sees the sterility of American Protestant liberalism, even at Union Theological Seminary, 
where he becomes influenced by Reinhold Niebuhr's understanding of Christian realism when he goes back and eventually, on a second trip to the United States, comes to the conclusion that he has to return, even under what he knows will be the threat to his life. He has to return to Germany to be with the German church in order to try to rebuild that church and German society in the aftermath of the horrors of World War II. But there was no way to go back without entering into those horrors. And there are twists and turns in that story as well. How many American evangelicals know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually joined the Abwehr? That is, the military intelligence of the Hitler regime. That points to one of the central issues that we have to understand when it comes to Bonhoeffer, and that is that he was a real-life human being. He was living in the context of some of the most challenging times that are imaginable. And that's an understatement. It's hard for any of us to imagine what it would have been like to have tried to operate as a Christian in the midst of the Nazi regime. And one of the things that you certainly gain from reading this biography, that is, Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is that it is actually impossible, if we're intellectually honest, to put ourselves in that story. Instead, we have to honestly read the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For evangelical Christians, one of the most important issues with Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not only getting the story straight, putting that story within its context, and understanding Bonhoeffer sympathetically within the contours of his own times, It also raises the fact that we can genuinely find encouragement. We can even find models that we would admire, models in this case of ethical courage, in the context of someone who held a theology that we do not share. You know, when reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theological works, I increasingly, the older I get, the longer I read Bonhoeffer, the more I come to the conclusion that he actually wasn't that much of a break with Protestant liberalism. The more I come to the conclusion that his religionless Christianity he called for at the very end stage of his life was really rather continuous with Adolf von Harnack's understanding of Protestant liberalism. And yet Bonhoeffer wanted transcendence. He wanted to find some way to have Christian community. He wanted to find some way to retain a binding Christian ethic that would be strong enough to resist even the Hitler regime. And he wanted all of that with what he understood to be a reformulation of Christianity that would become necessary and perhaps even possible in the collapse of the Nazi regime. The one thing we have to sympathetically understand is that that regime presented the great test case to the Christians who were directly under its shadow as to how in the world Christianity could survive a regime that was so nihilistically and unremittingly evil. The life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out that we can find genuine moral encouragement and moral instruction even in the life of someone whose theology we do not share. But when it comes to that theology, as an evangelical theologian, I resist those who rather carelessly and superficially try to make Bonhoeffer appear more evangelical than he actually is. And I want to point out that danger. It came up in the conversation with Charles Marsh. It comes up in the fact that we cannot simply take language where it appears and believe that that language or assume that that language means exactly what we would mean by it. You have to put it in the larger context. And that's especially true when reading someone, for instance, like Karl Barth, who can use language that sounds so essentially orthodox, and in many ways the language is, but you put it within the context of his understanding of revelation, of the relationship between history and salvation history, and you come to understand that he doesn't mean exactly by those words what we would mean by those words. That's a very careful reading. That's an issue of evangelical responsibility. We are to read critically. We are also to read sympathetically, and we are to read carefully, making certain that we are putting this statement within its context so we understand what is actually being conveyed. And that leads to another point when it comes to the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We actually have no basis on which to make an absolute statement about what kind of model that Christianity would have followed on the other side of the Nazi regime. 
He simply didn't live in order to write those books and to make those proposals. Charles Marsh very interestingly says that he thinks on the other side, Bonhoeffer would have recreated or reconstructed an understanding of theology that was more apostolic, tied to the Trinitarian faith, something that is very continuous with historic Christianity. I can simply say I hope he's right, but we actually don't know. If anyone could read all of Bonhoeffer's works and come to a conclusion as to where that might have been headed, Charles Marsh would certainly deserve that recognition. But the reality is we don't know. And even in his letters and papers from prison, there are theological fragments that could lead me to go in one direction, and then a few pages later, in a very different direction. I simply don't know. In the end, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most interesting of the 20th century. Hands down, simply no question. It is also one of the most important when it comes to the confrontation between theological issues and the reality of the day. The reality is horrifying as the rise of Nazism. We should have no embarrassment in citing Dietrich Bonhoeffer when it comes to ecclesiology and to very important statements about what it means to live theology together, what it means to be a Christian community. No embarrassment in citing Bonhoeffer on those issues at all. We should be very clear that Bonhoeffer was prophetic and right when he warned about cheap grace. And he was very right to point to the fact that cheap grace can lead not only to what we might say now is prosperity theology, but to something even more dangerous, and that is the murderous, race-based nihilism of the Nazi regime. Ever since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The theologian in me still struggles to understand exactly where Bonhoeffer stood and exactly what he meant in some of his writings. But it's most compelling when the twists and turns of Bonhoeffer's life and thought are told honestly and presented within the context of his times. That's what makes his story truly compelling. That's why you're going to find Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a truly captivating read. Like the very best of biographies, it will make you think about the subject of this biography, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And like the very best of biographies, it will make you think about yourself and where you fit, given the challenges of your own time in your own story. Many thanks to my guest, Charles Marsh, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobler.